Chapter Three, Part One of Shawl Straps: A Second Series of Aunt Jo's Scrap Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel. Shawl Straps: A Second Series of Aunt Jo's Scrap Bag by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Three, Part One, France. "'Girls, I have had a scintillation in the night. Listen and approve,' said Amanda, coming into the room where her comrades sat upon the floor, in the first stages of despair, at the impossibility of getting the accumulated rubbish of three months' travel into a couple of immense trunks. "'Blessed girl, you always bring a ray of light just at the darkest moment,' returned Lavinia with a sigh of relief, while Matilda looked over a barricade of sketch-books bristling with paint-brushes and added anxiously, if you could suggest how I'm to work this miracle, you will be a public benefactor. Behold the amendment I propose, began Amanda, perching herself on one of the arcs. We have decided to travel slowly and comfortably through France to Switzerland, stopping where we like and staying as long as we please at any place we fancy, being as free as air and having all the world before us where to choose, as it were. "'The route you have laid out is a charming one, and I don't see how you can improve it,' said Lavinia, who, though she was supposed to be the matron, guide, and protector of the younger girls, was in reality nothing but a dummy used for Mrs. Grundy's sake, and let the girls do just as they pleased, only claiming the right to groan and moan as much as she liked, when neuralgia, her familiar demon, claimed her for its own. "'One improvement remains to be made. Are these trunks a burden, a vexation of spirit, a curse?' demanded Amanda, tapping one with her carefully cherished finger-tips. "'They are! They are!' groaned the others, regarding the monsters with abhorrence. "'Then let us get rid of them, and set out with no luggage but a few necessaries in a shell-strap.' "'We will! We will!' returned the chorus. "'Shall we burn up our rubbish or give it away?' asked Lavinia, who liked energetic measures and was ready to cast her garments to the four winds of heaven, to save herself from the agonies of packing.' "'I shall never give up my pictures nor my boots,' cried Matilda, gathering her idols to her breast in a promiscuous heap. "'Be calm and listen,' returned the scintillator. "'Pack away all but the merest necessaries, and we will send the trunk by express to Lyons. Then, with our travelling bags and bundles, we can follow at our leisure.' "'Tis well, tis well,' replied the chorus, and they all returned to their packing, which was performed in the most characteristic manner." Amanda never seemed to have any clothes, yet was always well and appropriately dressed, so it did not take her long to lay a few garments, a book or two, a box of Roman coin lockets, scarabay brooches, and sink cento rings, likewise a swell hat and habit, into her vast trunk, then lock and label it in the most businesslike and thorough manner. Matilda found much difficulty in reconciling paint-pots and silk gowns, blue hats and statuary, French boots and Yankee notions. But order was at length produced from chaos, and the young lady refreshed her weary soul by painting large red M's all over the trunk to mark it for her own. Miss Lavinia packed and repacked four or five times, forgetting needfuls, which, of course, were always at the very bottom. At the fifth plunge into the depths her patience gave out, and with a vow to be a slave no longer to her treacherous memory, she tumbled everything in, performed a solemn jig on the lid till it locked, then pasted large but illegible placards in every available spot, and rested from her labours with every nerve in a throbbing condition. Shawl straps of the largest, strongest sort were next procured, 
and three bundles made up with much discussion and merriment. Into Amanda's went a volume of Shakespeare of great size and weight, but as indispensable as a toothbrush to its owner, toilet articles tied up in a handkerchief, a few necessary garments, and much paper, for Amanda was inspired with poetic fire at unexpected moments, also had five hundred bosom friends, in answering whose epistolary gushings much stationery was consumed. A pistol, a massive crust of bread, and an oval box containing all the dainty appliances for the culture, preservation, and ornamentation of the fingernails made up her store. Matilda's bundle consisted of sketch-books, a trifle of haberdashery, a curling-stick that was always tumbling out at inopportune moments, yards of blue ribbon, and a camp-stool strapped outside in company with a Japanese umbrella, a gift from the stout doctor, destined to be cursed in many languages by the unhappy beings into whose backs, eyes, and stomachs it was poked before its wanderings ended. Lavinia confined herself to a choice collection of bottles and pill-boxes, fur boots, a grey cloud, and several French novels, the solace of wakeful nights. A scarlet army blanket with U.S. in big black letters on it, enveloped her travelling medicine chest, and lent a cheerful air to the sombre spinster, whose black attire and hoarse voice made the sobriquet of Raven most appropriate. With these imposing bundles in one hand, little pouches slung over the shoulder, plain travelling suits, subdued hats, and resolute but benign countenances, our three errant damsels set forth one bright June day, to wander through France at their own sweet will. Not a fear assailed them, for all men were civil, all women friendly, and the world wore its sunniest aspect. Not a doubt perplexed them, for the gifted Amanda spoke many tongues, understood all sorts of money, could grapple successfully with Murray and Bradshaw, and never got into the wrong corporation when she traced a route with unerring accuracy through the mysteries of an indicator. No lord and master, in the shape of brother, spouse, or courier, ordered their outgoings and incomings, but liberty the most attire was theirs, and they enjoyed it heartily. Wisely and well, too, for, though off the grand route, they behaved themselves in public as decorously as if the eyes of all prim Boston were upon them, and proved by their triumphant success that the unprotected might go where they liked if they conducted themselves with the courtesy and discretion of gentlewomen. How pleasant were the early sail down the rainy from Diane to St. Malo, the comfortable breakfast in the flowery little court of Hotel Franklin, and the stroll afterward about the quaint old town, looking at the churches, buying fruit, and stoutly resisting the temptations of antique jewellery displayed in the dingy shops. Lavinia never forgave herself, however, for not securing a remarkable watch, and Amanda sighed months afterwards for a Breton collar and cross of charming antiquity and ugliness. Matilda boldly planted her camp-stool, unfurled her umbrella, and, undaunted by the crowd of round-capped, blue-bloused, wooden-shoed children about her, began to draw the church. "'I intend to study architecture, and to sketch all the cathedrals we see,' said the ardent art student, struggling manfully with the unruly umbrella, the unsavory odors from the gutter, and the garrulous crowd leaning over her shoulder, peering under her hat-brim, and examining all her belongings, with a confiding freedom rather embarrassing. "'Do you know what impertinent things these little scamps are saying to you?' asked Amanda, pausing in a lecture on surface drainage which she was delivering to Lavinia, who was vainly struggling to cram a fat wine-bottle, a cabbage-leaf of strawberries, and some remarkable cakes into the lunch-basket. "'No, I don't, and that is the advantage of not knowing any language but my own,' complacently replied Matilda, 
who considered all study but that of art as time wasted, and made her small store of French answer admirably by talking very loud and fast, and saying, oui, 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 on all occasions, with much gesticulation, and bows and smiles, of great suavity and sweetness. "'Clear out this rabble, or come back to the hotel and wait for the bus. We shall have the whole town round us soon, and I can't stand it,' said Amanda, who had no romantic admiration for the great unwashed. "'You think I can't do it? Voila!' and, rising suddenly to an unexpected height, Matilda waved the umbrella like a baton, cried, "Allez!" in a stern voice, and the children fled like chaff before the wind. "'You see how little is needed, so don't vex me with learning your old verbs any more,' and Matilda closed her book with an air of calm satisfaction. "'Come home and rest. It is so warm here I'm fairly melted,' prayed Lavinia, who had been longing for summer, and of course was not suited when she got it. "'Now do remember one thing. Don't let us be gregarious. We never know who we may pick up if we talk to people, and stray acquaintances are sad bores sometimes.' Granny is such a cross old dear she won't say a word to anyone if she can help it. But you, Matt, can't be trusted if we meet anyone who talks English. So be on your guard, or the peace of this party is lost, said Amanda impressively. We're not likely to meet any but natives in this wilderness, so don't excite yourself, Mandy dear, replied Matilda, who, being of a social turn and an attractive presence, was continually making friends, to the great annoyance of her more prudent comrades. In the flowery courtyard sat the group that one meets everywhere on the continent, even in the wilds of Brittany. The father and mother stout, tired, and rather subdued by the newness of things. The son, young America personified, loud, important, and inquisitive. The daughter, pretty, affected, and overdressed, all on the lookout for adventures and titles, fellow countrymen to impress, and foreigners eager to get the better of them. Seeing the peril from afar, Amanda buried herself in Murray to read up the tomb of Chateaubriand, the tide's population, and any other useful bit of history, for Amanda was a thrifty soul, and gathered honey all the day from every opening flower. Lavinia, finding the court damp, shrouded herself in the grey cloud, put her feet on the red bundle, and fortified herself with a turner's pill. But Matilda, guileless girl, roamed to and fro, patted the horses at the gate, picked flowers that no French hand would have dared to touch, and studied the effect of light and shade on the red head of the garçon, who gazed sentimentally at the blonde Mise as he artlessly watered the wine for dinner. The Americans had their eye upon her, and felt that, though the others might be forbidding Englishwomen, this one could be made to talk. So they pounced upon their prey, to the dismay of her mates, and proceeded to ask fifty questions to the minute, Poor Matt, glad to hear the sound of her native tongue, fell into the snare and grew more confiding every moment. "'She is telling the family history,' whispered Lavinia in a tone of despair. "'Now they're asking where we came from,' added Amanda, casting down her book in agony. "'Wink at her,' sighed Lavinia. "'Call to her,' groaned Amanda, as they heard their treasured secret betrayed and the enemy clamoring for further information about this charming trip." "'Matilda, bring me my shawl,' commanded the dowager. "'Come and see if you don't think we'd better go direct to Tours,' said the wary Amanda, hoping to put the enemy off the track. The victim came, and vials of wrath were poured upon her head in one unceasing flow till the omnibus started, and the ladies were appeased by finding that the enemy did not follow. "'Promise that you won't talk to any but natives, or I decline to lead this expedition,' said Amanda firmly. 
"'I promise,' returned Matt, with penitent meekness. "'Now we've got her,' croaked the raven, "'for she'll have to learn French or hold her tongue.' "'The language of the eye remains to me, and I am proficient in that, ma'am,' said Matt, roused by these efforts to deny her the right of free speech. "'You are welcome to it, dear,' and Amanda departed to buy tickets and dispatch the trunks, with secret misgivings that they would never be found again. "'Now we're fairly started, with no more weighing of luggage, fussing over checks or packing of traps to afflict us. What a heavenly sense of freedom it gives one to have nothing but an independent shawl-strap!' said Matilda, as they settled themselves in a vacant car and stowed away the bundles. What a jolly day that was, to be sure! Whether it was the air, the good coffee, or the liberty, certain it is that three merrier maids never travelled from St. Malo to Le Mans on a summer's day. Even the raven forgot her woes, and became so exhilarated that she smashed her broom-eyed bottle out of the window, declaring herself cured, and tried to sing Hail Columbia in a voice like an absmaic bagpipe. Matt amused herself and her comrades by picking up the different articles that kept tumbling down in her head from her badly built bundle, while Amanda scintillated to such an extent that the others laughed themselves into hysterics, and lay exhausted, prone upon the seats. They ate, drank, sung, gossiped, slept, read, and reveled, till another passenger got in, when propriety clothed them as with a garment, and the mirthful damsels became three studious statues. The newcomer was a little priest, so rosy and young that they called him the reverend boy. He seemed rather dismayed at first, but, finding the ladies silent and demure, he took heart, and read diligently in a dingy little prayer-book, stealing shy glances now and then from under his broad-brimmed hat at Amanda's white hands or Matilda's yellow locks, as if these vanities of the flesh had not quite lost their charms for him. By and by he fell asleep and leaned in his corner, making quite a pretty picture, for the ugly hat was off, his boyish face as placid as a child's, his buckled shoes and neat black stocking legs stretched comfortably out, his plump hands folded over the dingy book, and the little bands lay peacefully on his breast. He was quite at their mercy now, so the three women looked as much as they liked, wondering if the poor dear boy was satisfied with the life he had chosen, and getting tenderly pitiful over the losses he might learn to regret when it was too late. His dreams seemed to be pleasant ones, however, for once he laughed a blithe boyish laugh, good to hear, and when he woke, he rubbed his blue eyes and stared about, smiling like a newly roused baby. He got out all too soon, was joined by several other clerical youths, and disappeared with much touching of big beavers and wafting of cassocks. Innocent reverend little boy, I wonder what became of him, and hope his sleep's as quiet now as then, his awakening as happy as it seemed that summer day. Six o'clock saw our damsels at Le Mans, and after dinner a sunset walk took them to the grand old cathedral, where they wandered till moonrise. Pure Gothic of the twelfth century, rich in stained glass, carved screens, tombs of kings and queens, dim little chapels where devout souls told their beads before shadowy pictures of saints and martyrs, while over all the wonderful arches seemed to soar, one above the other, light and graceful as the natural curves of drooping branches, or the rise and fall of some great fountain. "'We shall not see anything finer than this, I'm sure. "'It's a perfect revelation to me,' said Matilda, "'in a calm rapture at the beauty all about her. "'This is a pious-feeling church, "'and I could sing my prayers here with all my soul, "'for it seems as if the religion of centuries had got built into it,' "'added Lavinia, thinking of the ugly imitations at home. 
"'You will both turn Catholic before we get through,' prophesied Amanda, retiring to study the tomb of Berengaria, Coeur de Lyon's wife. The square before the hotel was gay with a market, many soldiers lounging about, and flocks of people eating ices before the cafés. The ladies enjoyed it from the balcony, and then slumbered peacefully in a great room with three alcoves, much muslin drapery, and a bowl and pitcher like a good-sized cup and saucer. Another look at the cathedral in the early morning, and then away to Tours, which place they found a big, clean, handsome city, all astir for the fête dieu. We will stay over Sunday and see it, was the general vote, as the trio headed for the great church, and, catching sight of it, they subsided into a seat by the fountain opposite, and sat looking silently at the magnificent pile. How strangely impressive and eloquent it was! The evening red touched its grey towers with a mellow light like sunshine on a venerable head. Lower down, flights of rock circled around the fretted niches, quaint windows and grotesque gargoyles, while the great steps below swarmed with priests and soldiers, gay strangers and black-robed nuns, children and beggars. For over an hour our pilgrims sat and studied the wonderful facade, or walked round the outside, examining the rich carvings that covered every inch of the walls. Twilight fell before they had thought of entering, and feeling that they had seen enough for that night, they went thoughtfully home to dream of solemn shadows and saintly faces, for the cathedral haunted them still. Next day was spent in viewing Charlemagne's tower, and seeing the grand procession in honour of the day. The streets were hung with garlands, gay tapestries and banners, strewn with fresh boughs, and lined with people in festive array. As the procession passed, women ran out and scattered rose-leaves before it, and one young mother set her blooming baby on a heap of greenery in the middle of the street, leaving it there, that the holy ghost under its canopy might pass over it. A pretty sight, the rosy little creature, smiling in the sunshine as it sat playing with its own blue shoes, while the golden pageant went by, the chanting priests stepping carefully, and looking down with sudden benignity in their tired faces, as the holy shadow fell on the bright head, making baby blessed, and saved for ever in its pious mother's eyes. A great band played finely, scarlet soldiers followed, then the banners of patron saints were borne by children. St. Agnes and her lamb led a troop of pretty little girls carrying tall white lilies, filling the air with their sweetness. Mary, our mother, was followed by many orphans with black ribbons crossed over the young hearts that had lost so much. St. Martin led the charity boys in purple suits of just the color of the mantle he was dividing with the beggar on the banner, a pleasant emblem of the charitable cloak that covers so many. Priests in full splendor placed solemnly along with censers swinging, candles flickering, sweet-voiced boys singing, and hundreds kneeling as they passed. Most impressive figures, unless one caught a glimpse of something comically human to disturb the effect of the heavenly pageant. Lavinia had an eye for the ludicrous, and though she dropped a tear over the orphans, and with difficulty resisted a strong desire to catch and kiss the pretty baby, she scandalized her neighbors by laughing outright the next minute. A particularly portly, pious-looking priest, who was marching with superb dignity, and chanting like a devout bumblebee, suddenly mislaid his temper, and injured the effect by boxing a charity boy's ears with his gilded missal, and then capped the climax by taking a pinch of snuff, with a sonorous satisfaction that convulsed the heretic. The afternoon was spent in the church, wandering to and fro, each alone to study and enjoy her own way. Matilda lost her head entirely, and had silent raptures over the old pictures. 
Amanda said her prayers, looked up her dates, and imparted her facts in a proper and decorous manner, while Lavinia went up and down, finding for herself little pictures not painted by hands, and reading histories more interesting to her than those of saints and martyrs. In one dim chapel, with a single candle lighting up the divine sorrow of the Mater Dolorosa, knelt a woman in deep black, weeping and praying all alone. In another flowery nook dedicated to the infant Jesus, a peasant girl was telling her beads over the baby asleep in her lap, her sunburnt face refined and beautiful by the tenderness of mother-love. In a third chapel a pale, wasted old man sat propped in a chair while his rosy old wife prayed heartily to St. Gratian, the patron saint of the church, for the recovery of her John Anderson. And most striking of all was a dark, handsome young man, well-dressed and elegant, who was waiting at the door of a confessional with some great trouble in his face, as he muttered and crossed himself, while his haggard eyes were fixed on the benignant figure of St. Francis, as if asking him if it were possible for him also to put away the pleasant sins and follies of the world, and lead a life like that which embalms the memory of that good man. "'If we don't go away to-morrow we never shall, for this church will bewitch us and make it impossible to leave,' said Amanda, when at length they tore themselves away. "'I gave up trying to sketch cathedrals.' "'It can't be done, and it seems impious to try,' said Matilda, quite exhausted by something deeper than pleasure. "'I think the reminiscences of a rook would make a capital story. They're long-lived birds and could tell tales of the past that would entirely eclipse our modern rubbish,' said Lavinia, taking a last look at the solemn towers and the shadowy birds that had haunted them for ages. The ladies agreed to be off early in the morning, that they might reach Amboise in time for the eleven o'clock breakfast.' Amanda was to pay the bill and to make certain inquiries at the office, Matt to fly out and do a trifle of shopping, while Lavinia packed up the bundles and mounted guard over them. They separated, but in half an hour all met again, not in their room according to agreement, but before the cathedral, which had all decided not to revisit on any account. Matilda was there first, and as each of the others came stealing round the corner, she greeted them with a laugh, in which all joined after the first surprise was over. "'I told you it would be witches,' said Amanda, and then all took a farewell look, which lasted so long that they had to rush back to the hotel in most unseemly haste. "'Now to fresh chateaus and churches new,' sang Lavinia, as they rolled away on the fourth stage of their summer journey. A very short stage it was, and soon they were in an entirely new scene, for Amboise was a little old-time village on the banks of the Loire, looking as if it had been asleep for a hundred years.' The Lyon d'Or was a quaint place, so like the inns described in French novels, that one kept expecting to see some of Dumas' heroes come dashing up, all boots, plumes, and pistols, with a love-letter for some court beauty in the castle on the hill beyond. Queer galleries and stairs led up outside the house to the rooms above. The salle à manger was across a court, and every dish came from a kitchen round the corner. The garçon, a beaming, ubiquitous creature, trotted perpetually, diving down steps, darting into dark corners, or skipping up ladders, producing needfuls from most unexpected places. The bread came up from the stable, soup from the cellar, coffee out of a meal chest, and napkins from the housetop, apparently for Adolphe went up among the weathercocks to get them. "'No one knows us, no one can speak a word of English, and if we happen to die here it will ever be known.' "'How romantic and nice it is!' exclaimed Matt in good spirits, for the people treated the ladies as if they were duchesses in disguise, and the young women liked it. 
I'm not sure that the romance is all it looks. We should be in a sweet contrary if anything happened to our sheet-anchor here. Just remember, in any danger, save Amanda first, and then she will save us. But if she's lost, all is lost, replied Lavinia darkly, for she always took tragical views of life when her bones ached. Up the hill they went after breakfast, and balm was found for the old lady's woes in the sight of many Angora cats, of great size and beauty. White as snow, with tails like plumes and mild yellow eyes, were these charmers. At every window sat one, on every doorstep sprawled a bunch of down, and frequently the eye of the tabby-loving spinster was gladdened by the touching spectacle of a blonde mamma in the bosom of her young family. "'If I could only carry it, I've had one of those dears, no matter what it cost!' cried Lavinia, more captivated by a live cat than by all the dead Huguenots that Catherine de Medicis hung over the castle walls on a certain memorable occasion. "'Well, you can't, so come on and improve your mind with some good, useful history,' said Amanda, leading them forward. "'You must remember that Charles the Seventh was born here in 1740, that Anne of Brittany married him for her first husband, and that he bumped his head against a low door in the garden here above, as he was running through to play bowls with his Anne, and it killed him.' "'Which, the bump or the bulls?' asked Matt, who liked to have things clearly stated. "'Don't be frivolous, child. "'Here, Margaret of Anjou and her son were reconciled to Warwick. "'Abd el and his family were kept prisoners here, "'and in the garden is a tomb with a crescent on it, "'likewise a pleached walk, and a winding drive inside the great tower, "'up which lords and ladies used to ride straight into the hall,' "'continued the sage Amanda, who yearned to enlighten the darkness of her careless friends.' A brisk old woman did the honours of the castle, showing them mouldy chapels, sepulchral halls, rickety stairs, grubby cells, and pitch-dark passages, till even the romantic Matilda was glad to see the light of day, and repose in the pleasant gardens while removing the cobwebs from her countenance and the dust from her raiment. A lovely view! Gladdened their eyes as they stood on the balcony, whence the amiable Catherine surveyed the walls hung thick, and the river choked up with the dead. Below, the broad Loire rolled slowly by between its green banks. Little boys, in the costume of Cupid, were riding great horses in to bathe after the day's work. The grey roofs of the town nestled to the hillside, and far away stretched the summer landscape, full of vague suggestions of new scenes and pleasures to the pilgrims. We start for Chenonceau's at seven in the morning. So, ladies, I beg that you will be ready punctually, was the command issued by Amanda, as they went to their rooms, after a festive dinner of what Lavinia called earthworms and cacti, not being fond of stewed brains, baked eels, or thistles and pigweed chopped up in oil. Such a droll night as the wanderers spent, no locks on the doors and no bells, stairs leading straight up in the gallery from the courtyard, carts going and coming, soft footsteps stealing up and down, whispers that sounded suspicious, though they were only orders to kill chickens and pick salad for the morrow and a ghostly whistle that disturbed Lavinia so much she at last draped herself in the green coverlet and went boldly forth upon the balcony to see what it meant. She intended to demand silence in French that would strike terror to the soul of the bravest native. But when she saw that poor dear hard-worked garçon blacking boots by the light of the moon, her heart melted with pity, and resolving to give him an extra fee, she silently returned to her stone-floored bower and fell asleep in a stuffy little bed, whose orange curtains filled her dreams with volcanic eruptions and conflagrations of the most lurid description. At seven, an open carriage with a stout pair of horses and a sleepy driver rolled out of the courtyard of the Lyon d'Or, 
Within it sat three ladies, who gazed at one another with cheerful countenances, and surveyed the world with an air of bland content, beautiful to behold. "'I'm fairly faint with happiness,' sighed Matilda, as they drove through fields scarlet with poppies, starred with daisies, or yellow with buttercups, while birds piped gaily, and trees wore their early green. "'You did not eat any breakfast. That accounts for it. Have a crust, do,' said Amanda, who seldom stirred without a good, sweet crust or two, for they were easy to carry, wholesome to chew, and always ready at a moment's notice. "'Let us save our entusimusi till we get to the chateau, and enjoy this lovely drive in a peaceful manner,' said Lavinia, still a little sleepy after her adventures in the glimpses of the moon. So, for an hour or two, they rolled along the smooth road, luxuriating in the summer sights and sounds about them, the wayside cottages with women working in the gardens, villages clustered round some tiny picturesque church, windmills whirling on the distant hilltops, vineyards full of peasants tying up the young vines, or trudging by with baskets on their backs, heaped with green cuttings for the goats at home. Old men, breaking stone by the roadside, touched their red caps to the pilgrims, jolly boys shouted at them from the cherry trees, and little children peeped from behind the rose bushes blooming everywhere. Soon glimpses of the winding share began to appear, then an avenue of stately trees, and then, standing directly in the river, rose the lovely chateau built for Diane de Poitiers by her royal lover. Leaving the carriage at the lodge, our sightseers crossed the moat, and, led by a wooden-faced girl with a lisp, entered the famous pleasure-house, which its present owner, a pensive man in black velvet who played fitfully on a French horn in a pepper-pot tower, is carefully restoring to its former splendor. The great picture-gallery was the chief attraction, and, beginning with Diane herself, a tall simpering baggage, with a bow, hounds, crescent, and a blue sash for drapery, they were led through a rapid review of all sorts of worthies and unworthies, relics and rubbish, without end. Portraits are always interesting. Even Lavinia, who had no soul for art, as Matt said, looked with real pleasure at a bas-relief of Agnes of Sorel, and pictures of Montaigne, Rabelais, Ninon d'Enclos, Madame de Savagne, and miniatures of Lafayette and Ben Franklin. The latter gentleman looked rather out of place in such society, but perhaps his good old face preached the Dianes and Ninons a silent sermon. His plain suit certainly was a relief to the eye, wearied with periwigged sages and bejeweled sinners. Here was the little theatre where Rousseau's plays were acted. Here were the gilded chairs in which kings had sat, swords heroes had held, books philosophers had pored over, mirrors that had reflected famous beauties, and painted walls that looked down on royal revels long ago. The old kitchen had a fireplace big enough for a dozen cooks to have spoiled gallons of broth in, queer pots and pans, and a handy little window out of which they could fish at any moment, for the river ran below. The chapel, chambers, balconies, and terraces were all being repaired for, thanks to George Sand's grandmother, who owned the place in the time of the Revolution, it was spared out of respect to her, and is still a charming relic of the past. The ladies went down the mossy steps, leading from the gallery to the further shore, and lying under the oaks, whiled away the noontime by repeopling the spot with the shapes that used to inhabit it. A very happy hour it was, dreaming there by the little river, with the scent of new-mown hay in the fresh wind, and before them the airy towers and gables of the old chateau, rising from the stream like a vision of departed splendor, love, and romance. Having seen everything, and bought photographs ad libitum of the wooden-faced lisper, who cheated awfully, 
the pilgrims drove away, satiated with relics, royalty, and regarde. End of chapter 3, part 1